You're listening to Food Psych, a podcast about nutrition, eating disorders, and body image. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist and certified intuitive eating counselor specializing in health at every size. Join me as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships to food. Hey guys, welcome to episode 64. So this episode is a little different than the usual ones in that today we have a special topic all about preventing and treating eating disorders in children. So it's a special topic because my guest is such an expert on this area. It's Kelsey Latimer. She's a licensed psychologist at the Center for Pediatric Eating Disorders of Children's Health and Children's Medical Center in Plano, Texas. And she's also an assistant professor in psychiatry at UT Southwestern Medical Center. So she's a total badass and she has a lot of great information to share on eating disorder prevention in children, which of course is related to eating disorder prevention in the general population and body acceptance and body positivity are big parts of that. So we talk about a lot of the same themes that we address on the podcast in lots of different ways, but she really does a great job of distilling information and like creating actionable tips and sort of helping people frame how they see these issues. So if you've ever wondered why, you know, we all live in this media saturated environment, which is, you know, full of diet culture at every turn, and yet only some people develop eating disorders, well, she kind of explains the reasons that that is. And um, she also gives some really helpful tips for parents who want to know how to prevent eating disorders in their kids, which are also relevant for people who may have experienced body shame and eating disorders as children themselves in sort of reflecting on like how your parents shaped you and, you know, your relationship to them now, because obviously we were all kids once and, you know, many of us also have kids at some point in our lives. So I think the issue of fostering body positivity in children is such an important one. So Kelsey does talk a little bit about her own background as well in this episode, but it's much more focused on this uh, sort of special topic. So I can't wait for you guys to hear this one and we'll get to that in just a moment. But first, I want to point you to a couple of great resources for helping improve your relationship with food. The first is my free quiz to assess your relationship with food and see how healthy it is. I'll send you your results via email along with more than a dozen personalized, individualized tips to help you make peace with food wherever you might fall on the spectrum right now. Take the quiz and get your results today at christyharrison.com slash quiz. That's christyharrison.com slash quiz. The second resource I want to share is my Intuitive Eating Online course. It's a 13-week program that I created to help you work through all the principles of intuitive eating in depth and really demystify and troubleshoot the common areas where people tend to get stuck. I'll show you how to recognize the diet mentality even in its subtle forms and how to start substituting healthy thoughts instead. I'll share my secrets to making food and exercise choices from a place of self-care rather than self-control, and I'll teach you how to navigate emotional eating and how to stop alternating between restricting and overeating, and so, so, so much more. Several participants have shared that the course has helped them make peace with their quote off-limits foods already. As one participant put it after trying one of their quote-unquote bad foods, I felt free, sweet, sweet freedom. Why was I so afraid of this food? I doubt I'll feel the need to buy another package when this one's gone, but just knowing it's off the bad list tastes and feels like a huge epiphany. What a moment of power. 
Participants are also having major revelations about how the diet mentality is hanging on in hidden ways. As one participant put it, before doing this module, I really thought I had given up the diet mentality. Now I realize that although I consciously reject dieting, I still have plenty of work to do towards accepting myself as I am. It was great. It really helped me identify what I need to work on by bringing it to my full awareness. And yet another participant shared this beautiful revelation she had in the course. My worth is not my weight or my looks, but my heart, mind, and soul. I need to trade in my self-judgment for self-love and compassion. It feels impossible some days, but I'm going to do my best. I deserve it. If you'd like to join others on this intuitive eating journey and have some beautiful revelations of your own, go to christyharrison.com course to learn more and sign up. That's christyharrison.com course. And then finally, if you like the podcast and want to help us reach more people who need to hear the body positive message, you can leave us a great review on iTunes. And I really appreciate people who've left reviews so far. Just open up iTunes on your computer, type in Food Psych to the search bar, click the result that comes up under podcasts, and then go to the ratings and reviews tab. There you can leave a rating and review sharing what you love about the podcast. And I'm so, so grateful for these nice reviews because they help bring us up in the ratings and help more people find these positive messages. So without any further ado, let's hear from Kelsey Latimer. I spoke with her on Skype from her office in Plano, Texas. Tell me, Kelsey, a little bit about what you do at Children's. Yeah, so Children's Health is um, is an amazing organization overall. Um, and the fact that the, the mission is to make the lives of children better every day. I can't think of a better place to go to work than to do that and to know that every day when I'm going in, I'm going to make somebody's life better. And that's really, you know, that's the center of all the work that I do. So within the Children's Health System, I'm actually the lead psychologist for the Center for Pediatric Eating Disorders. Um, and my role there is actually... It's, it's multidimensional. I do a lot of different things, but really one of the reasons why I was hired there was to help develop and further the foundations of the therapy programming. And so a lot of what I do centers around making sure that the therapeutic uh, programs that the kids are involved in are evidence-based. And so uh, for, for your viewers, they may not know necessarily what that means, but it means making sure that we're not just saying, hey, you know, we want to do this because we think it works um, or we like it. You know, it's about making sure that the evidence is there to support the things that we're doing. And I was very fortunate when I came into the Center for Pediatric Eating Disorders because truly it was already an amazing program. So all I had to do was go in and think, well, how can I make it even better than it already is? Um, so I took those those unique skill sets that I have as a psychologist in pediatrics and brought them in there. Um, in addition to that, I also do individual therapy uh, and I do family therapy as well. I don't do as much of that anymore, but I definitely did that initially. We are a family-centered um, treatment program. And so what that means is that the family is the center of the treatment team. Um, and they really share, you know, anytime you're working with kids, you're never just working with kids. You're working with the family. And um, as you know, Christy, like when you're working with an eating disorder, you're not really just, it's not just the child who has an eating disorder. It's usually um, there's something in the family that may unknowingly be supporting that. And the family's absolutely Mm -hmm. affected by the eating disorder and having the family-based treatment 
what's amazing about that, it's also part of that evidence-based treatment programming. It's supported by the American Psychiatric Association as the standard of care, the kind of the gold standard. And that's because we know that if we help a child by helping the family, we're going to send them back to a healed system, not just, you know, quote unquote, fixing the child or fixing their eating problem and then sending them back. Because if we don't work on the environment and they go back to the environment that may unknowingly be supporting that, there are going to be issues there. So those are some of the key things that I do um, at the Center for Pediatric Eating Disorders. And it's just an overall phenomenal program with some amazing people, a multidisciplinary team, which um, has nurses and teachers and dietitians and psychiatrists and psychologists and therapists and people from all different backgrounds all getting together to to help these kids. So it's an incredible thing to do every single day. Yeah, that's awesome. And tell me a little more about like what the evidence says is the thing to do to both prevent and treat eating disorders because I know you have some background in prevention as well and you do some of that work. Yes. And actually what's interesting is that the prevention work you might think is think is very different than the intervention work, but it's actually um, it's somewhat based on the same evidence that you can use. And then it just you just tailor it a little bit differently, depending on whether or not you're working with kids or it doesn't have to just be kids. It can be people who mm-hmm. maybe are for eating disorders versus those that, those that have them. So similar um, programming, just tailored a little bit differently. But one of the uh, the major theories in the field, kind of the overarching theory is the biopsychosocial model, which, you know, Christy, I'm I'm sure you've been exposed to Mm -hmm. as well. And basically what that is, it's really, really nice. It supports, it's well supported by by a multidisciplinary team because it covers the biology, the um, sociology or social impact and the psychology. So it looks at every single factor. And so what we do is um, at our center and at many centers that treat eating disorders, they really do focus on all of those areas. Um, instead of, again, you know, in, in an outpatient setting, you're really only limited to probably one of those pieces that you're working with and you have to create your own multidisciplinary team. But in an inpatient setting like I'm at, um, I have that, you know, that valuable kind of uh positive factor that I I have those people around me. So the biology, um, what we know is that eating disorders tend to be highly heritable, meaning that, you know, if if somebody has an eating disorder, likely when you go through like the psychological history, it's likely that somebody else in that family is probably going to have an eating disorder as well, Mm -hmm. or something that's closely related to it, like maybe anxiety or depression, things like that. So that is actually really helpful because a lot of times, and I'm, sh- I'm sure you see this in your practice too, Christy, that a lot of times, you know, people come in and they feel like they're to blame for this eating disorder. This is something I did, you know, to my family or opposite. The family feels like this is something I did to my child. And the reality is it's, it's really neither one of those. It's one kind of factor in the perfect storm of the development of eating disorders. So we know that biology is a, definitely a factor. And what's cool about that is that, you know, we can't change our genes, but we can definitely do something about that. So if we, you know, if we have, we have great child psychiatrists that we work with. And so when they identify, okay, this person might be slightly anxious and maybe, you know, cause these kids tend to be incredibly high achieving. They do everything perfectly. So, so it's not uncommon for it to go unnoticed that maybe they had a problem with anxiety or depression because they may cover it up. You know, everything looks perfect from the outside with these kids. So then our psychiatrist might say, hey, you know, 
it looks like you've got some undiagnosed anxiety here or some undiagnosed depression, or maybe quite a bit of perfectionism or different things like that. Mm-hmm. And then they can treat it. So sometimes medication is used to treat those things as another kind of coping tool in the process of, of healing from the eating disorder. So biology is really important. And then we have the psychology aspect of the biopsychosocial model. And what we know from that is that there are certain things, um, certain factors like perfectionism is a huge one. And I was listening to a previous episode of yours where I think you even mentioned that you were a really perfectionistic. Oh, yes. (laughs) Many of us that are highly successful are very perfectionistic. So that in and of itself is not a bad thing, but it's all about how you you utilize it and the other things that go along with it um, that can make it, you know, determine whether or not it's going to be positive perfectionism or that maladaptive perfectionism. So perfectionism is a huge thing. And um, in, in my work, one of the things I've focused on is that perfectionism and identifying it even further than that to um, what we call socially prescribed perfectionism, which is what that is, is kind of like, you know, recognizing what the, the society wants you to do. Um, and knowing that the society wants me to be these particular things. Society wants me to be a cute, sweet, calm little girl, you know, who's perfect in every single way and never says a bad thing. And, you know, thinness certainly goes in there, all of those different things Mm -hmm. versus self-oriented perfectionism, which is kind of that drive and that motivation to succeed. Uh, And we can see that that could be possibly a good thing, but it's all in place too, because that can get out of balance as well. But what I want your viewers to think about is when we put those two things together, that's when we have major, major problems. Because mm-hmm. if somebody has, it's kind of like, um, it's a formula that is that is really dangerous because it's sort of, I always describe it like taking a match to gasoline. You know, each one of those mm-hmm. things on their own, probably not going to really do anything in particular, but put them together and now we have an explosion. We have something really negative that can come out of that. And the reason why that is, is because you have the ability to know, to read everybody, to read the society, to read the people around you and to know what they want you to do and be, and then add this all four into perfectionism. And now you've got the drive to do it. So it can be incredibly dangerous when it's not monitored. So that is a major one when we're talking about the, um, the component of, of psychology that we need to be aware of. Uh, along with also neuroticism, which is just a fancy word for anxiety. Again, anxiety could be a really good thing. It could be drive, it be motivation, but used in the wrong ways, it can be really, really difficult for a person to manage. You can set them up nicely for an eating disorder. And then another one is body shame and what we also call objectification, which is really like thinking about that root word of it, which is object. It's thinking about yourself in terms of a series of objects rather than thinking about yourself as a whole person. And, you know, even just saying that, um, it's, it's hard for me when I think that some of our kids feel like that. You know, they, they think that they're a thigh or a stomach or, you know, their size of their arms is what's important. And they fail to recognize that their whole being is something very important. And the, the whole is more than the sum of its parts. So that's a big one in the literature that we know is is linked to disordered eating. And then another big one that I like to talk about is shame. It's huge. And 
you know, we could talk about that for hours because it's there's really so much in there. But shame is always a damaging, very, very damaging emotion. It never leads to anything good. It only takes a person kind of back in their life because it forces you to keep things secretive and forces you to keep things inside. So, you know, if it's if it's a kid experiencing that, let's say they're experiencing shame about their body and they're afraid, you know, this is so bad, I shouldn't say it out loud, then all of that, those thoughts and all of those things that are going on have an opportunity to flourish and grow in a negative way. Same thing with a family. If a family feels shameful over their child having an eating disorder, then they're less likely to talk about it, reach out and get treatment. It's always just a damaging thing. Um, And if you want to talk about that later, we can just kind of the difference between shame and guilt, because it really is so, so, so impactful and important in in the development of eating disorders. And then finally, our our cultural component, which um, of the biopsychosocial model, which is huge. Uh, Let's admit it. I mean, we can't go anywhere this day and age without seeing something on dieting or thinness or, you know, how I should look, what I should be. All of those messages are all around us every single day. We're immersed in it, fully immersed in it. So it's hard to get away from it. And it's, it's been estimated that from the National Eating Disorder Association, it's estimated it's about 5,000 messages per day that people are exposed to. And, and honestly, I think that's a conservative estimate, given the fact that kids are on their uh, cell phones and Facebook and all of that stuff, an average of like 10 times. So they're probably exposed to it even more. So, you know, the society, those messages that we're getting only then kind of reinforce any inner messages that the child already has. And then maybe some of those other influences like if the family is also focused on thinness um, or, you know, their friend group is, or maybe their coaches are pushing them toward that. Then, you know, all of a sudden we, we have all of those things kind of coming together to, to create the perfect storm. And in some cases, the outcome of an eating disorder. So my job is to take that evidence and figure out, how do we then protect against it? Okay, here are the things we know can lead to an eating disorder. So how do we use them in a way that can protect kids mm-hmm. against it? So that's what I do in my job. I love that. That's such a beautiful way of explaining how everything comes together because I think sometimes in this field, you know, various people are working on the social aspect. You know, that's a lot of what I do in the podcast is like putting out messages to the contrary of the body negativity and weight stigma. And then, you know, people are focusing on the bio part, like psychiatrists and stuff who are working on, you know, research or medication for that you know, aspect of the eating disorders. And then there's the psychologists who are, you know, doing individual work or family work and like everybody's, you know, work really overlaps and supports each other. But I think sometimes it, you know, people in the public get this misconception, like, wait, maybe it's genetic or maybe it's only social or maybe like, how does it all fit together? So I think the biopsychosocial explanation is a really nice way of framing it. Yeah, you're right, because we can, I mean, just like fad uh, dieting, right, we can get so stuck on thinking, hearing one thing and getting sucked into thinking that's the only way to think about it. And, you know, some of the research may lead us, maybe something's going to be popular at our current time, but the biopsychosocial really recognizes that it's, it's honestly, it's all three of those components. And mm-hmm. like I said, it's helpful for my clients to recognize and, and most importantly for the families, because they do tend to come in with so much shame. You know, they're coming in and 
they're bringing their child in significantly underweight and the child might be compromised in many different ways and they have a lot of shame with that. So it's good to hear um, oftentimes that number one, you're not a bad parent because you have a child with an eating disorder. And number two, you know, that there are a lot of different things that led to this and, and we can do something about it. Um, so we want to take responsibility for the things that we have done that maybe led to it because they're in, in that lies our power. So you don't mm -hmm. want to give that away. But nobody's to blame for the outcome of the eating disorder, too. Right. And recognizing, too, that everybody is facing the same social pressures and that, yes. you know, parents who are living in this culture of body shame and, you know, the diet culture, like, of course, are going to feel those pressures and, of course, might act those out toward their kids or model those, you know, around their kids. And that's not that's not their fault either. That's just the culture we live in, unfortunately. Absolutely. And, you know, on top of that, even though they may have grown up in that same sort of culture, though I do think it's worse in this day and age for these kids, you know, even 15 or 20 years ago um, when I was a kid. But, you know, even though maybe the parents have been exposed to it, they didn't develop an eating disorder. So there are going to be many kids that are exposed to these things that don't develop an eating disorder. So it really isn't their fault. Now, the other side of that is they may not even have realized that they had that sort of talk in their household. Sometimes, you know, we're in a family therapy session and the, the kiddo's like talking about how, you know, I've seen, you know, mom change outfits a million times or she's she's always on another diet or and mom didn't even realize that she was communicating those messages. Um, so it really gives an opportunity, like I said, of not only healing the child, but sometimes we can heal the family from sort of being sucked into this idea that they need to be perfect or they need to look a certain way too. And then they become advocates for, um, you know, like you were saying, like looking at things at health at every size or, you know, creating some dissonance there of the messages that they're seeing in society. So they can sometimes go on to do some pretty cool things that they never would have done before either. Totally. Yeah, it's so amazing, you know, the effect that knowledge has on all of this, like once you yes. really understand the, the other side. Wouldn't it be really to the advantage of advertisers and people who have products out there to mm -hmm. have us know the knowledge, right? Because once we know the knowledge and we say, hey, wait a minute, like it hasn't always been that people are thin and that's good. Um, you know, at different points in, in during times, there were times that being a larger size was considered a much better thing. It actually indicated that you had more money or that you were a higher status, right? So our kids don't know that, though. Um, so I think that, you know, it's very important to, number one, provide that knowledge about that, that it hasn't always been this way. Therefore, it doesn't always have to be this way. It can change again, and it will. Um, and number two, like, take a step back and think about how the products and all of those things are sold by selling you into thinking that there's something wrong with you. If it can't make you think there's something wrong with you, then a lot of people have a lot of money to lose, you know? So that's something that, um, that I think that we, we work really hard to, to, to teach our kids and give them a language that they haven't been exposed to before. Um, and I can tell you one, one thing pops out to me. I'm sure you've seen the Dove campaigns. Have you seen those, Christy? Mm -hmm, absolutely. So powerful. And there's so many good ones out there. But um, I remember this one particular group that I was running with about 20 teenagers in it. And uh, we showed a very short video, one of the Dove videos. I think it was one of the first ones that was made. That's about 45 seconds long. And it just goes through and takes this really kind of cute, girl anyway. She was probably better than average looking to begin with. Mm -hmm. And then they transform her. 
through the makeup and the hair and then they did the lighting and then, you know, they do all the airbrushing and all of that. And they completely make her look like a whole different person, even mm-hmm. though she was fine looking to begin with. And the kids actually said to us, hey, wait a minute, does that like actually happen? <laughs> so we assume, we assume that they know these things, that right. they know that airbrushing is happening. And, and honestly, they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember very specifically that there was a child uh, that left that group that day and told me, Dr. Kelsey, you know, you changed my life. I just want to let you know that because I had no idea that these things, and it was just such a powerful moment because you're providing education mm-hmm. to somebody who then, you know, it, it's not that the message ends there. It has to keep going. The conversation has to keep going. But now they may have like, I don't know, maybe two seconds in between looking at that magazine and then having that little bit of space where they can start to think, mm, I don't know, maybe that's pitched. whereas before that they didn't. So that's like a start in the process. And um, those are just one of the things that you can do, you know, to create that dissonance. I love that. Yeah. Media literacy is so helpful. I think also it's like, you know, teenagers, especially, or kids that are starting to like, think about their own autonomy, I think really respond well to that. Cause it's yes. clearly an assault on their autonomy. If advertisers are using this stuff to manipulate them into buying things. Totally. And another thing I try to help them understand too, that they, this is the part they really don't get. So how many of you think you've been influenced by advertisers and like, nobody wants to admit it, right? Nobody wants to say I've been influenced. And so they'll, they'll often say, well, not me. And, you know, I'll tell them, guess what? Advertisers want you to think that. They're like, want me to think I haven't been influenced. Well, they want you to, because if you know that you've been influenced, then you have the opportunity to step back and say, do I want to be influenced? Do I want to take in that message? And so for, for the people that in this room that say that they haven't been, you're really probably the ones that have been most impacted by it because you don't have the understanding to recognize that it's probably been impacting you. And one of the ways that I help them understand that is I'll say, okay, so if I gave you the choice tomorrow to have yellow teeth or white teeth, which one would you choose? You know, they'll be like, well, obviously white teeth. Well, why? Well, because that means I'm healthier. That means I'm younger. And I'm like, exactly. That is, you know, there's, there's no indication that saying that the white teeth means you have healthier teeth. It probably means you have a better bleaching product, you know? Right. But it's about, it conveys that message. And so somewhere along the way, we got that message that having white teeth meant that we looked younger, more attractive and all of those things. Um, and, and then I say to them, you know, and I would too. Uh, so obviously I've been impacted by it as well, but you know, it's very important that you recognize that because if you don't, then all of those messages can be just wildly going off in your mind without you having an opportunity to, like I said, get in there and say, do I want to think that? Totally. Yeah, I love that metaphor. That's a really good one. The white teeth. Tell me a little bit about your background and how you got into doing this work. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because I ask myself, how did I get into doing this work? Um, You know, it's not something that I always thought I was going to do. It's not something I didn't think I was going to do, but it's not something I always thought I was going to do. I definitely always thought ever since I was a little kid, I knew I was going to do something with teaching or psychology. And, um, you know, it's funny because I was thinking about this and I remembered, uh, how much I loved school and teaching so much so that I have a little sister. She's two years younger than me. And I would come home from school every single day and teach her everything that I learned. Uh And so 
Nobody knew that. So for a long time, they thought that she was like a genius child because she was testing out of everything. They had no idea, but it was really because I was practicing my teaching skills on her. So, so I guess that that goes a long, long way back. Ever since I was little, I used to love like teaching and, and, you know, just helping in some sort of way. As I got older, I definitely was interested in psychology. That was something I knew uh, probably as early as like 12 or 13. I remember sneaking. Um, I was a very rebellious child. I snuck uh, Oprah. And that's about the extent of my rebelliousness. <laughs> but I used to sneak watching Oprah because I loved watching how she would talk to people and watching how psychologists were on the show. I didn't understand any of that stuff back then, but you know, I, now looking back, I understand that that's what they were doing. And I just loved like hearing how people would talk about their stories and how it impacted them and, and all of that. And the reason why I say I snuck it is because I remember my dad um, always saying, you know, Kelsey, turn that, turn that off. You're not allowed to watch those things. Mm. But it was very important to me. So that was the one rebellious thing I did during my teenage years. <laughs> and uh, so my parents had it very lucky. Yeah, so seriously. I was always really interested in that stuff. And, and so for me, it was a natural fit. When I went on to college, I knew I was going to study psychology. That was not a question. But um, I didn't necessarily know what I was going to do with it. And one of the things that I think is so important, I think you and I are both in line on this, is is following your intuition, you know, and, and realizing that it never will lead you astray. Mm -hmm. The only times that I have made big mistakes, I mean, mistakes that, you know, probably I wish I hadn't. I think a lot of times mistakes are very helpful because they can guide you. But sometimes there are ones that you make that you're like, ah, oh, you know, I really wish I wouldn't have made that mistake. Mm -hmm. And the only times that I can think about that I've maybe made mistakes that I've actually regretted were times that I didn't listen to that intuition and that inner voice that I knew what I should have done, but I just, you know, I didn't follow it. And so I always tell people that, like, listen to your gut, listen to your intuition. And it's very different from anxiety, by the way. We should talk about that in a second, too, because you can get that confused with anxiety and avoidance. And it's really different. But I say that because... When I, um, since the time I was in college, I started getting really good at listening to that internal voice and, and I started making very good decisions for myself. I mean, I was always a good student and all of that, but I really wasn't good at being able to express uh, my voice and say, mm -hmm. this is what I want, even though I might've known that that's what I wanted. But when I started getting into college and going into psychology classes and talking to professors and um, I actually picked up anthropology along the way. I had no idea what anthropology was, but double majored because I listened to my intuition. I listened to that gut instinct that said, hey, you really like this. Try out another course. Try out another one. And then before I knew it, it kind of led to a whole path that I never would have taken had I not listened to that. And it, it's just so, so, so incredibly important because from that moment of starting to listen to that intuition, I've made choices that I honestly wouldn't have predicted necessarily for myself, but they've been the right ones. They've been a great step on the path for me. And I've also made additional steps on my path, like getting from college to my first job. That happened with me taking a risk by reaching out to a professor who just happened to be adjuncting that semester and saying, hey, you're doing something that I think I want to do. Do you have a spot for me there? Um, and, you know, then from from uh, finishing undergrad and, and working in a, in a really great place that I could have probably could have stayed in forever to taking that risk of going on to grad school and thinking, I think I can do this. Maybe I am smart enough. Um, you know, not doubting that, just kind of 
moving along with that and trusting that the choices I was making were going to get me to the place that I needed to be. And so at that time, that's where I started um, working a little bit more with eating disorders. It wasn't something I had always done. Even right out of college, um, I studied pediatrics and in HIV prevention, actually. And then, you know, from there, moved on to graduate school, got connected with a professor, very, very talented, knowledgeable professor there who introduced me to eating disorders. And I don't know if it's like this in the dietitian world, but I can tell you in the psychology world, very few people want to work with eating disorders. They have a lot of preconceived notions about what it is, what it isn't. Um, even amazing professors, amazing therapists have a very skewed version of what eating disorders are. So once yeah. you start working with eating disorders, you're like the eating disorder person. Everybody wants <laughs> right. to And so I ended up kind of getting that label. Hey, you're the eating disorder person. And, and I really liked it. So I just took on more and more and more and just loved everything that I was doing. And so I thought, hey, wait, you know, I love this. Maybe I want to do more of this. Yeah. And so yeah. I went on to my internship and actually did um, kind of what you would call maybe a minor and eating disorders and went on from there to a postdoc and did more work with eating disorders all the way up until where I am now. So long story short, the key, I think, to being where you need to be, whether it's, you know, balanced in your, in your body with food or in your life is being aware of that intuition, letting it guide you and, and not, you know, talking yourself out of that. So mm -hmm. since I've been very good with that, I've, really not made mistakes in my life that I wish I hadn't all the makes the mistakes I've made. I'm like, Oh, those were good mistakes. They helped, you know, bring me to where I am. Yeah. I totally identify with that. I, I definitely have, you know, a few things that I really regret doing that I know my intuition was telling me not to do in the first place. And then, you know, the other things it's like, well, I either didn't know how to listen to my intuition at that point, or I, you know, was listening to it and I just, you know, made a, a misstep, but it actually helped me learn. So yeah, Absolutely. I love that. Those things can be so important, you know, like sometimes you don't know what the right answer for you is until you make the wrong one. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, that I now I know. Um, and you feel right. it, right? Or the specifics too, like the, your intuition can say like, you need to do this or you need more of this you know, feeling in your life, but you don't know exactly what it is that's going to create that. So you try different things and maybe something right. works and something doesn't. Those are things that I think are kind of like those really good mistakes. Mm -hmm. I was actually at a graduation the other day and I heard, I heard this awesome um, speaker and she said, and the kids were all stunned when she said this, but she said, I encourage you to fail big. Mm -hmm. And they're like, what? And the parents were like, what? Don't fail. <laughs> what she was talking about and then she clarified her message she said you know what i mean by that is if you're not failing you're not succeeding if you're not mm -hmm. failing you're playing it so safe that you're actually not living you know um so it's okay to fail and really i think what she meant by that is it's okay to make mistakes it's okay to go out there and that's how you find you know who you are is by you know going off the path a little bit too right mm -hmm. i mean i made mistakes and look at, you know, look at where I am now. I'm, I'm exactly where I should be. Right. So um, it's, it's never too late, I guess, to, to make a different choice. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so curious too, to hear your take on like how you determine whether something's intuition or anxiety, right? Cause that is, it's like that gut feeling can be so nebulous sometimes. <laughs> well, I think that, you know, I mean, it is tough to kind of, to put it into words, but mm -hmm. I think that that you hit the nail on the head as far as I look at it, which is when I'm talking to kids, I, I teach them um, in terms of three categories, which is 
to understand the difference between being comfortable, uncomfortable, and unsafe. And this is, these are probably the, the most three most important categories I can teach any kid because we typically get unsafe and uncomfortable mixed up. And one of them is anxiety and one of them is intuition. So what I teach them is, you know, that being comfortable is something that we all want. Like who doesn't want, I love to go home and be pampered by my mother like twice a year and love it when, I mean, she treats me like I'm like 15 when I'm there. She makes all my meals for me and, you know, asks me if I took my medicine before I went to bed. It's just great. And that's so comforting, right? We all all want that to a certain extent. And it's okay to want that. And it's good to want that. And it's important to have some of that, you know, in anybody's life. And so that's being comfortable. But I help kids understand that you're not really going to grow in comfortable. You're just going to kind of be where you are. You're going to maintain. And that's okay. And then we have uncomfortable. And so uncomfortable is really that category where, We are, you know, we have an opportunity to move forward, to take a risk that we, none of us will ever grow in our lives unless we get uncomfortable, right? We have to take risks during times of feeling like, well, I don't know if I can do this thing, but let me go ahead and and try to do it. Let me see what's going to happen, whether that be take a risk in therapy or take a risk. Like I told you, you know, I was in a comfy job where people really liked me. And I said, I think I'll go back to graduate school and be poor for another six years. That was a big risk. And so I was a little uncomfortable doing that. But in those opportunities of being uncomfortable, we have the opportunity to grow. So we can move, you know, we can move forward when we're uncomfortable. And that's where I say that when we, when we make a a choice to not move into uncomfortable, that's anxiety. So that's coming from your head. It's coming from the what ifs, oh my God, can I do this? What's gonna what's it gonna be like? Am I gonna be as smart as everybody? What if I'm not? Is he or she gonna like me? Or what if I'm not the best basketball player on the team? You know, all of those things. Those are those worries are up in your head. That's anxiety. Uh, we all have it sometimes. And you know, as long as you identify it, there's nothing wrong with it. It's normal and we can move past it. But it can lead to you not allowing yourself to be in, in the uncomfortable place, which means that you're probably gonna grow, you're not gonna move forward. But then there is unsafe and unsafe is very different from uncomfortable and unsafe never leads to growth. It only leads to moving back in your life. Um, It's kind of how I explain it to kids because it's where you are, you're getting that gut intuition is telling you something is terribly, terribly wrong. And so if you listen to it, good things are going to happen, right? You're going to, you're going to, avoid that negative thing that probably was going to happen when the little hairs stand on your arms, you know, it's about listening to that and not questioning it. When things go wrong there is when somebody disconnects from that intuition and says, well, it's probably not going to be a deal. I'm probably just blowing this out of proportion, you know, or just get over it or you're being too sensitive, you know, all of those types of things that we've probably heard from other people and started to analyze and have those conversations with ourselves. And then we get ourselves into situations that can be unsafe. And so that's really how I look at the difference is that when we talk about intuition, it's that gut reaction, that thing that you really can't put your finger on. It's not coming from your head. It's coming from your instinct. It's coming from a very kind of instinctual place or a foundation in yourself. When you're grounded, when you're centered as a person, you have a really good sense of being in touch with that intuition. And when you're really anxious, you don't trust yourself. 
you're all up in your head. And so if you convince yourself out of all of these things, it really probably would have been the best thing for you to do. Does that make sense? Am I kind of being clear on that? Totally. Yeah. And I think the distinction between uncomfortable and unsafe is a really interesting one in eating disorder recovery too, because I hear from so many clients who need to restore weight, right? That they're like, that they feel unsafe, that it, it feels like it can't possibly be right. And like, everybody's lying to them, telling them they need to do this. And, you know, they can't possibly go on. And it's like, that's just a high level of discomfort. It's not actually being unsafe. In fact, it's the safest thing you can possibly do, right? Yes. And in fact, they probably felt unsafe when they were in the process of going against that. And they were doing you know, to, to engage in the eating disorder. And they had to ignore those things like, oh, it's not really that big of it. You know, they had to talk themselves out mm-hmm. of listening to that intuition. So I think you're exactly right. And with kids in treatment, I really try to help them you know, to, to get to engage in that and to really start listening to their intuition again, because to have a successful eating disorder, you have to disconnect from that, right? You have to disconnect your mind and your body. And so part of the healing process is to put those two things together again, to learn how to listen to hunger cues, to learn how to listen to emotional cues, all of those types of things that were that if you have a successful eating disorder, you're very good at not doing. So those are those are some things that we have to learn how to do again. Right. And we're all born knowing how to do those things. And it all functions beautifully before the eating disorder sets in. So it can absolutely come back. It's just a matter of retraining the brain. I totally love that you said that because think about it. You know, we were born to know how to do these things. We were born to listen to our intuition, to ask when to be fed, to cry when we needed something, to do all of these things. And as we become, quote unquote, smarter and older, we outlearn all of those things. Yes. We go up to our big brains and we over rely on that. And of course, you know, our big brains have a purpose. Mm -hmm. It's important to think through things, but it, I think sometimes we, um, we sort of maybe say, well, feelings and feelings, yuck, push those away. And then overvalue knowledge, especially in our Westernized society. So yeah, we have to learn how to like feel during treatment, which for kids with eating disorders, man, that's a yucky thing. I do not want to touch that. But when they learn that it's, it's not as bad as they think it's going to be, then, um, then it tends to be okay. Right. Yeah. The discomfort at the beginning starts to go away and it actually starts to feel more authentic. Yes, exactly. And if they come to a place where we're doing things in treatment where they do feel unsafe, there's no place like the present to actually practice that. Mm -hmm. So practicing, you know, I'm listening right now and it's not my anxiety. I think it's my intuition telling me this is unsafe for me. Mm -hmm. And then I always will honor that. I'll be like, okay, it's unsafe for you right now. We're not going to do that right now. Um, What are we going to do? What would be safe? You know, because they definitely know they're the experts on themselves, but they don't feel like it anymore after they have an eating disorder. So those are some things that we could do to help with that. Yeah, I love that. Well, so we're running out of time, but I just wanted to quickly ask you if you have any tips for parents on preventing eating disorders in their kids or dealing with a kid that they think might have eating issues or sort of the beginnings of an eating disorder. Yes, I do. I have several tips, actually. And, you know, the first is to, again, I told you about me listening to my intuition. I know that that's big for you, too, Christy. And I'm going to ask you were based also listen to theirs. Parents usually have uh, an inner gut. They know their child better than anyone. And they know when something is off for their child. And when their child gets to the point where they're at a center like mine, it's usually because the parents didn't listen to that, you know. And again, I'm not any parents. We do it all the time. But 
it happens. And so what I want your parents out there to do is to really learn to listen to themselves. If they think there's something going on with their child, eating disorder or otherwise, just ask them about that. Have a conversation. Don't shy away from conversations. Ask them. Even if the answer is no, then the worst thing that happened is your child knows that they can talk to you if there ever is an issue. So that's a really important thing. I think also recognizing some of the stuff we talked about here in the podcast that in our westernized society that there's an overfocus on kind of body control. That's how, you know, ever since we're born, it's did you eat on time, talk on time, drink on time, you know, walk on all those. So developmental milestones are are um measured by our ability to do things with our bodies. So recognize that when we move into the teenage years, that tends to just kind of transition off into um, trying to attain fitness. It's not a weird thing. It happens. So if we know that, then we can do things to protect against it. We can, instead of just focusing on achievements, you know, focus on the, the person as themselves. Wow, you're a really kind and giving, caring person. You know, things like that, rather than you did a really great job at the basketball meet. Now, both are important, but, you know, don't leave out the second, the the first one there of you're a really important special person just because outside of your accomplishments. I think also exposing your children to different beauty ideals if you can. Again, I know this is something that you're really big on, you know, think of health at every size. So we're really lucky to be in a day and age where we have dolls that are of different colors and sizes and, you know, different stuff that, that I don't even remember being around so much when I was a kid. You know, or have discussions about them. Hey, um, one of the things that my parents always did really well was to tell me, you know, you don't have to look like that, right? They did a really good time about that. So have discussions with your kids about, wow, like, let's take a, you know, you watch, just watch this movie together. And this, this character was incredibly thin. How did that make you feel? You know, have that conversation. I would also say not labeling things as healthy or unhealthy. I really like to think about healthy is for the person. It is not in a number. It is not in a size. It is not in a food. So what is healthy for one person is going to be very different from what is healthy for another person. And in our society, we can tend to categorize things as either good or bad, you know, healthy or unhealthy. And that is so damaging. So I like to get outside of those labels. And one of the most important things that you can do as a family uh, member is to model healthy behavior yourself. It doesn't mean being perfect. It just means, you know, if you catch yourself falling into that world of dieting or fat talk or things like that, just correct it. You know, have a conversation about it. I'm not asking you to be perfect. I'm not perfect either. It happens. And I do this for a living. So it happens for all of us. It's in our kind of daily lingo. And then a couple other ones that I think are pretty helpful for your audience is thinking about, you know, when you engage in movement, why you're doing that. Are you exercising because you feel like you need to compensate for a number of calories that you ate? God, that feels so calculated and so lifelike and so, you know, not fun. So about engaging in fun things in your life, like joyful movement or activity, changing the word around for what you do rather than thinking about it as exercise. And the last thing that I think could be really helpful for your audience is to think about the use of technology. Um, it can be very helpful in us connecting with people like we're connecting today on technology and, and your audience is going to be exposed to the stuff that maybe never would have had an opportunity had Skype not existed and a podcast not existed. So it's a really cool, thing, but there's a downside to it too. And that is a lot of times families right now are over meals. We're using technology. We maybe have our phones on us at all times or we're watching TV or we're doing things like that. So these things that are meant to connect us can actually disconnect us. And so I think that we need to um, maybe put that stuff away. Our families that do better in our center, families that put technology away for that 30 minutes while they're eating dinner and they just have conversations with their kids about 
you know, what's going on in your day or your life or school or anything. How are you feeling? You know, all of those different things. So incorporating more mindfulness, I think, into, um, into our day-to-day lives. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Those are such great tips. Well, so tell us where people can find you online. So you can find us online at www.childrens.com. If you're interested in knowing more about the Center for Pediatric Eating Disorders, we have a link on that website as well. And if you're, um, you know, another thing that sometimes comes out of this stuff is people are like, well, I don't know, maybe my kid has an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you feel like that would be helpful for your viewers, I'm happy to also provide our intake number as well. We have a wonderful, wonderful um, LPC who is on that line. And what she'll do is she'll, she's very good at just talking to people and saying, okay, you know, maybe you're not at our level of care. We're able to refer you to this place or this place, or maybe you are. So um, we're happy to answer those questions and consult like Yeah, I will definitely put that in the show notes so that people can click through and just call right away. Well, thanks so much for being with us, Kelsey. It was great talking with you. Thank you so much. Also, Christy, appreciate it. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to our guest for being here and to you guys for listening. We'll be back again in two weeks with another brand new episode. So be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Android or whatever your favorite podcast app is if you haven't done so already. Meanwhile, I'd love to stay in touch with you online. The best way is by email. So if you join my email VIP list, you'll get exclusive tips about intuitive eating and body positivity and updates about all my work as well as new episodes of the podcast. So if you go to christyharrison.com slash email, you can sign up there. That's christyharrison.com slash email. And I would love to have you guys all on my VIP list. And then you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Food Psych on Facebook and Food Psych Pod on Twitter. And then I am also on Instagram, just me this time. I don't have a separate account for the podcast, but I'm on Instagram at Christy Harrison. And the first I is a one. The music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. Who put you there?